At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. Good morning, church. This text we're about to dive into this morning is a little bit tough, very somber, and I struggled for a couple of weeks while I was preparing this. How do I open a message like this? You know, a story didn't seem fitting, a joke definitely wouldn't be appropriate, and I see right there that God opened it for us. The worship lined right up with the big idea, lined right up with the point, so praise be to God for going before us, opening our hearts to him and preparing us for what we have to go through this morning. And it's a tough text to read and study. There's a lot of suffering and grief and heartache. It's things that some of us are going through this morning. There was a box right up here that had our lament to God in it. Some of the questions that we have to ask as we're going through struggles in life mirror the questions that Jeremiah asks in Lamentations this morning. And the beauty of lament is that it reassures us that God is still in control while we walk through these things. We've seen that over the past several weeks. Through seasons of pain and grief, lament encourages us to turn our focus away from the rubble of life that we're standing right in the middle of and turn our focus on the Redeemer of every hurt. That's exactly what we'll see this morning as we go into Lamentations chapter 5. It's an encouragement for us to turn toward promise while we're still in the pain. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, whether it's via phone or tablet or a paper Bible, turn to Lamentations chapter 5. Keep your finger in there, though, as we're going to go verse by verse through the text this morning. And we're going to see as we make it through the big idea that praying lament leads us back to God. Chapter 5 is a little bit different. It doesn't follow the same poetic structure as the last four chapters. It's not the alphabetic acrostic where every line starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's different. It's a prayer, chapter 5 is. It's a prayer of renewal and of hope. The prayer is telling us to call out to God in the worst of suffering and ask him to act. And this type of a prayer for action is God-honoring. In fact, every time we go to God in prayer, it's God-honoring because we're assuming three things when we pray. The first thing we're assuming is that God hears. It would be pretty pointless for us to be praying if we didn't assume that God could hear our prayers. And as we assume that he hears our prayers, we're acknowledging some of the beautiful attributes about God. We're saying, we realize, God, that you are all present. You're present everywhere. You can hear us. And we realize and we're acknowledging the attribute of him being all-knowing. You understand what I'm saying. You know everything. But even if he could hear, and that was the end of it, it would still be pointless if he didn't care. So we are assuming that he cares as well. And as we're assuming that he cares, we're acknowledging another attribute. And that's one of love and of graciousness and of goodness. But if all it was is God could hear and he cared, it would still be pointless for us to pray. So the third thing that we acknowledge when we pray is that he can act. And when we understand and when we pray thinking that he can hear and that he cares and that he can act, we're acknowledging another one of those attributes, and that's he's omnipotent. 
He's all-powerful. No matter what we're going through, he has the power to change our circumstances. We honor God with these prayers. The bigger the prayer, the bigger the request, the more grievous the situation we're in. When we lay it at his feet, we give him great honor. Prayer is an example of humility in our lives. As we say, I can't do it, but I know and trust that you can. That's God's expectation on all of us as believers. That we'll give everything to him in prayer. Palms open, hearts wide, trusting that he can take care of the situation for us. And Lamentations chapter 5 is a model of that, praying with total surrender. So to kind of set the stage for where we're going this morning, I said the text is kind of heavy. Last week, Pastor Dan talked us through chapter 4, and what we saw was that Jerusalem was surrounded by the enemy. It was a war of attrition where they had cut off all supplies coming into the city, and they were starving the people out. It was a campaign of starvation. We saw that people became worthless. Children who were once well-fed now begged and died in the streets. Gentle, loving mothers had now turned in some circumstances on their children because of starvation. We saw rich rulers who normally feasted on delicacies were now diving into the trash for food and dying in the streets. And it was said that death by fire and brimstone would have been better than what they were going through during those 18 months of starvation. And this week we'll see that that starvation blockade has ended. That doesn't mean the pain is over. The enemy is now occupying the city. The enemy has come inside. And we'll hear the despair of living under this enemy occupation. So life went from what was really bad to even worse. So let's read together the first seven verses. Lamentations chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. We read in verse 1, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary and given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. So when Jeremiah starts out here in verse 1, he's asking God to remember. And what he's doing is he's evoking covenantal events like the exodus from Egypt, where God miraculously took his people right out of the front door of this world superpower, and the Egyptians were powerless to stop them. He's asking God to recall that, saying, remember who we are to you. Remember what we've been through together. And as he does that, as he calls out this historic identity, he's lamenting their disgrace. This is what's lamented in the next couple of verses. The disgrace is due to a loss of identity. Think about that. If somebody was to ask you, who are you? You might respond, I'm a mother or a father. I'm a daughter, son. You might talk about your title at work. You might say, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's so many things you could use to describe yourself But for the people of God here in Israel, especially in the city of Jerusalem, that's gone. The very things that mark them as God's chosen people have evaporated. The first thing they've lost is an inherited identity. We see it in verse 2. He laments the disgrace of their inheritance being turned over to strangers. Because this land, it was their guarantee. Tangible proof that they had a covenant relationship with God. The land in their very homes is now inhabited by foreigners. 
And when we say foreigners, we're not just referring to non-Jews that are there inhabiting the land. What we're talking about here is horribly harsh and aggressive opponents now control every aspect of the land. Everything, including their homes, were now the property of an abusive pagan people. If that wasn't enough, we see the loss of family identity as well. In verse 3, he laments the disgrace of becoming orphans and widows. Most of the fathers are gone. The people now lack the basics of protection and provision. They've been reduced to a marginalized and vulnerable people. Everything now. It's a part of this family unit is wiped out and gone. No protection, no resources, no homes, and no hope. If that wasn't a lot enough, they lost a national identity as well. They're treated like aliens in their own land while it's under occupation. We see that in verse 4. They have to pay for the basic survival needs. Things that this bountiful land of milk and honey once provided for them now come at a heavy price. Verse 5, they're being pushed to exhaustion by enemy soldiers. Verse 6, they're humiliated. Humiliated by having to do deals with former enemies former captors like Egypt who had enslaved them. They have to go back to Egypt now, hands out, saying, can you please feed us? Our God has left us. We're in despair. And a great deal of this national identity that they have comes from the three-part system of governance that God had ordained for them. God had set up a governing system for Israel, part of his identity with them. You look at it kind of like a three-legged stool. There were prophets that communicated from God to the people, said, thus saith the Lord, and that people would hear those words and course correct to stay in line with what God had planned for them. You had priests who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to atone for sins before a holy God. And the other part of this three-part government was kings. And the kings were meant to lead the nation in lockstep with God's words so that all would be well in the land. And when all of these functioned as desired, as God had planned, there was peace and prosperity in the land. The kings ruled well. The prophets spoke. The people listened. The priests atoned for sins, kept people holy before God. The problem we see here, though, is the previous four decades were of the most godless in Israel's history. We read that the kings actually led people away from God, that the prophets and the priests were shedding innocent blood. So not just one leg of this stool was wobbly. If that was the case, the other two could help support. All three legs are gone. And there it is. In verse 7, if you're following along, the real reason for the suffering, it's sin. The people are bearing the weight of the sins of themselves and the previous generations. So when Jeremiah calls on God to remember, he's asking him to see the disgrace that rests on them because of their collective sin. And there's this central appeal, this feeling of shame. It's almost like he takes a step back and they're all saying, what have we done? Where have we gone? God's temple is devastated. Their leaders are killed and humiliated. This nation is ruined. But the thing that we can learn about this this morning is that instead of running from this shame, sweeping it under the rug, hiding it and saying everything's great, they embrace it through lament, and they lay it at God's feet where it belongs. I'd like to clarify that this type of punishment for sin from God to his people doesn't apply to us. We're living under a new covenant of grace fulfilled by Jesus. Our sin does not bring punishment from God, though some will say 
that you have a health issue or a disabled child so it's a result of sin in your life, and that's not the case. God sent Jesus to bear the pain and the wrath and the suffering for sin once and for all. He bore it to completion on the cross. We may still suffer as a result of sin or as a result of bad choices in our lives. That just brings pain as a natural byproduct, and God can use that pain to course-correct us, to continue to mold us in the image of Jesus, but don't ever think that your pain is punitive from God or that it's a punishment from him. Let's read what the people lamented next in verses 8 through 16. Starting in verse 8, it says, Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands and no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under heavy loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The second thing that we see the poet lament this morning is the enslavement of God's people. The focus now shifts from the pain of disgrace to the pain of enslavement. Verse 8 is going to set up the tone of this section for us. Slaves that were freed from the power of a global superpower by God miraculously, freed from one of the most powerful nations in the world, are now ruled by common foot soldiers of this enemy. And the problem is that there's no hope in sight of another exodus. They realize they're stuck. And it gets even worse in 9 and 16 as we see the graphic state of their enslavement. Let's look at 9 and 10. Food is something they have to go out into the wilderness for at great danger and stress to their own lives. This is a people whose story was God miraculously providing manna and quail and water from a rock to provide for them. But now to get food, they have to go out into the wilderness where they find only pain. It says their skin burns as a result of the slow starvation. That's your body slowly dissolving everything that's left. Your skin burns from starving. Verse 11. This is a tough verse. It's one that makes me grit my teeth in anger. It's this horrible mistreatment of women during this enslavement. It's one of those horrible aspects of war that happens to this day. It's a terrible reality, and it's meant to devalue the people at the feet of the enemy. It devalues the women as it destroys them, and the men, too, as their desire is to protect, but they can't. And furthermore, it is attacking the purity of the nation. For generations to come, there'll be a genetic reminder of this time of occupation by this foreign oppressive enemy. And it gets worse. Verses 12 and 13, not only are the women mistreated, but the older men are given no dignity. Princes are subject to torture and execution, and the young are being worked to death, grinding at the mill and carrying heavy loads. Those are two tasks that are meant for beasts of burden. We're at the tail end of 18 months of starvation. There are no more beasts of burden. They've long since been consumed. So God's people, God's sovereign nation has been reduced 
to the tasks of animals. And then verse 14 on displays the silence of the entire culture. No joy. All that's heard is the sobs of the abused and the groans of the tortured, the gasping of the overloaded. Their joy has turned to mourning. They've lost everything that made them God's sovereign nation. And then at the end of 16, we see the deepest moment of self-awareness in this book. It gives us a sentence that's applicable across all generations. It says, woe to us, for we have sinned. Sin has come in like sin always does at the price of joy. Sin masquerades as happiness or fulfillment. By the end, it brings only pain. And it displaces joy in our lives so that all that's left is despair. Jesus says to us that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slaves have no will of their own. They're duty-bound to the will of their master. They're in bondage. And when we're following a master, we can't resist. Sin enslaves us, and it holds us in a place where joy is absent and pain rules the day. But by the power of Christ, we can overcome enslavement to sin. So let's fast forward to right here today. Are you living enslaved to sin? It's a question we all have to ask. If so, the results are a joyless life, trying to overcome that enslavement on your own, which you cannot do. If you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, then you're currently enslaved to sin and separated from God. Take this moment. Lament that enslavement to God. Come to him in faith. He came to set you free through Jesus Christ from that slavery to sin. And we can take this back to those Old Testament offices because Jesus occupies them now. Trust in Christ as your prophet. He speaks to us now through his word, in prayer, through his Holy Spirit that lives within us. Rely on him as your great high priest. We read in Hebrews that he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. When accusations come against us saying, they're not worthy. Look at these horrible things they're doing. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. I paid the price. And finally, follow Christ as your king. He's the king that leads well, following his words and his ways. He'll deliver a life of peace, a life of joy. Christians, those of us who do know Christ as our Savior, we can't leave this unsaid. We cannot continue in habitual sin. You've died to sin. You are alive in Christ and dead to sin. If this is you today, if there's a habitual sin in your life that you haven't surrendered, lament that sin this morning and come back to Jesus. The alternative is that without Jesus, we remain estranged from God. Let's look at the poet's final lament, the final section in this series, verses 17 through 22. says, for this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures for all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. 
unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The last thing we see lamented here is their estrangement. The people are separated from God. They've sinned, and this sin has affected their relationship with him. All of this awful stuff that we've just described has led us up to this moment where their hearts become sick. Look at verse 18. The net result is that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, this city on a hill that was untouchable because of God's protection, is now a charred mound of rubble, defiled by jackals. It's collapsed. It's ended. Everybody who sees it realizes it's gone. And that's it. That's rock bottom. Then comes my favorite part. The previous hopelessness that we read about leads us up to verse 19 where a single word changes the focus completely. It's that wonderful holy conjunction again. And that focus-changing word is but. You see it there at the beginning of verse 19. This is the tipping point of the whole book. From the lowest point of Israel's despair, we are transported and catapulted immediately to the highest of heights in the universe, the enduring throne of God. And this is going to radically shift the perspective of this whole book, especially this chapter, and it shifts the perspective of everybody who reads it throughout history. It provides the foundation of hope for us. Even though the people had looked everywhere, they looked within themselves, they looked to foreign powers, they realized that the only place that hope is found is through the one whose throne endures forever. And then Jeremiah does something a little bit different. He moves from this place of praising God in the highest heights to a question. You see it there? Verses 19 and 20, they're back to back, and that's special. There's a praise followed by a question, and what that's showing us is that God is sovereign. He's not toppled by our questions. It's okay to come to him with lament. It's okay to agree that, yes, God, you are in control, but this hurts and doesn't seem right. Pastor Dan often says it like this. He says, God is good. Life is hard. Don't confuse the two. Lament is how we can live as Christians between these two polar opposites of a sovereign God who is in control and a life that is really hard. And life can feel like it's out of control sometimes. God can sometimes seem distant. It can seem like evil is winning the day. I'm sure you've felt that way many times. Or maybe you're walking alongside of somebody right now whose life seems extra cruel. Lamentation shows us that God's sovereignty and his reign are not negated by our suffering. God is still in control when we have medical issues with no resolution. God is still in control even through tragic loss. God's in control as we cry out to him on behalf of wayward children or family members who have wandered from the faith. God is still in control when we suffer from addiction or depression or anxiety. God still reigns, church, even when our future is clouded by the things of this world. So as we close this morning, as we close out this series, let's look at verse 21. The longest lament in the Bible ends with a prayer of restoration. The request is, renew our days as of old. And this isn't a request that they could return to prosperity or that they could boot this occupying enemy out of their land. 
It's not a request even for an end of suffering. What it is, it's a repentance and spiritual revival that are desired for here. It's a longing for heart-based renewal. The people of God are estranged and they're separated from their Lord and the poet's calling for a renewed relationship. If you know Jesus today, praise the Lord, that was your story. Maybe this is still your story. Maybe you're still separated from God. If you are separated from God because of sin, give thanks to God because of the work of Jesus that it doesn't have to stay that way. Jesus can radically flip this script upside down. You know what the opposite of estrangement is and separation? It's love and relationship, and Jesus provides both. Paul tells us well in Ephesians, he says, and here's that wonderful conjunction again, He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together in Christ. Our eternal break in relationship can be restored by God through the finished work of Jesus. And it requires only faith on your part. Repent of your sins and come to Jesus in faith. You don't have to be estranged from God. Place your faith in Christ. Lament your estrangement and call on God for renewal through the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that today. God, we pray that if there are those out there who don't know you, that your spirit would be moving in a powerful way. God, we know that it is only you that can draw people to salvation. And we ask that you would do that this morning. Open our eyes to where we are. God, open our eyes to who you are and what you have provided through the work of Jesus. Draw people to salvation, we pray. And Lord, if there are Christians out there who are stuck in a cycle of habitual sin, I pray that your spirit would move in them to repent of it and draw them back into close relationship with you. And Father, for those of us who are going through tough times this morning, tough times that have been going on for a while, it feels overwhelming, but we know that you offer hope. Pray that we will lean on you knowing that your sovereignty is not in check because of our suffering. Pray that we will lament before you, God, knowing that your throne endures forever. Lord, that you've provided a way to heaven through the finished work of Jesus. We love you. We thank you for what we've learned in this series. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.